Please hear the word of the Lord from Mark 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He began to teach them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. When he was alone, those who were around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. And happy uh, Daylight Savings Day. Hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep or coffee. Or if you have two toddlers like me, happy Sunday. Uh, we're in a, a, a part of Mark where Jesus is going to tell some parables. And this first parable appears to be about farming, about gardening. And maybe you've had an experience with gardening in your life. Maybe you're a perennial gardener and every year you uh, go to Home Depot or Lowe's or, or somewhere else, Garden World, and you pick up a bunch of plants and you, you plant them and you grow vegetables. Maybe you just tried it once. Uh, what I want to do for just a minute, if you don't mind, is, is take a moment and turn to the person next to you and tell them your experience with gardening. Whether that's flowers or vegetables or whatever. Uh, 
And and in this, I'm going to include, if you can keep a lawn alive in West Texas, I'm going to count you as a successful gardener, okay? Uh, Turn to that person and share with them. The the rules are simple. If they don't want to play, they're going to look at their phone. Uh, We're going to do that for about 90 seconds. Ready, go. About 30 more seconds. You know, at the beginning of this uh, week, I thought this was a parable about the soils. So much so that I thought, this isn't a parable of the sower. We ought to rename this thing. This is the parable of the soils. And, and some parables are difficult to explain, but in this one, Jesus is so kind to explain uh, it to us why the gospel affects some and not others, why some initially hear but then turn away, others who follow for a time but then get lost amid the weeds. And I had this great story I was going to tell you about soil, about the time I made soil in my backyard. I don't know if you know you can do this, but you can do this. We lived in Fort Smith. We had this giant backyard. I had too much time on my hands. I decided I'm going to build soil, and it's pretty simple. It's like you make a lasagna. Uh, You start with uh, dead leaves, and then you do some grass clippings, and then you do your own, like, uh, vegetables from your kitchen, uh, the ones that you don't eat. And then then you put some manure on top. You don't eat that either. And then you just kind of layer that on there like a lasagna, and, and then you just let it set. And so I, I made uh, my, my soil. Now, that that's like, sounds really poetic. It's really just a, a compost pile, but whatever. And, and I, in the middle of the winter, I came out to my compost pile, and, and I took a stick, and I thrust it deep into the pile. I pull it out, and steam geysers up. I was making soil. Now, really, you have to fast forward like 10 years later for this to actually work. But at the end of the day, at one point, there is going to be really rich and vibrant soil for uh, planting. I was going to tell you that story. And I had these great points about connecting uh, the birds to outside forces that can steal faith before it rests and rocks to the inward forces that lead to a shallow and short-lasting commitment. And the the weeds, I was going to compare those to current examples of things that choke out faith in our lives simply, simply because they demand too much time and resources from us so that we could reflect on them and decide the condition of our hearts. I even researched various spiritual disciplines to recommend. If you found yourself with the wrong sort of soil in your soul, the spiritual roundup you could use to kill the weeds, the metaphorical shovels to dig out the rocks, the mystic crows, scarecrows of your psyche to keep the birds away. And leave it to me to make a story in scripture told by our savior about me. 
And maybe this isn't the parable of the soils. Maybe this is the parable of the sower. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive our foolish hearts. Forgive the impulse that lives within us to insert ourselves as the center of your story. For God, from the beginning of creation until now, you have been purposing the world for your kingdom. It all exists because of your great love. And we, Father, are the beneficiaries of your story. We stand in awe of the works of your hands, the way that you have moved in our lives to save us, to find us, to rescue us, to make us new. And Father, we pray that we might join the big story that you are telling, that we might be a part of it, that you might count us as bit players in your narrative so that we could just be a part of the unfolding kingdom that's around us. Father, if there's any chance, use us. Use our gifts and use our time and use our resources, use everything around us, even if it's our very selves for your kingdom and for your glory. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your love and truth to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So I want to talk for a minute about how to read parables. Um, you see, parables exist as a particular genre in Scripture, in New Testament, but parables aren't only found in Scripture. They're actually all over the place, and they exist in uh, current media. They exist all around us. One of the best examples of a terrific storytelling uh, that uses parables, in my opinion, is, is kind of the modern film Apocalypse Now. Now, this is not a film that's rated PG-13. This is definitely an R-rated film, so I just kind of want to give you that uh, warning, but, but there are beautiful parables that exist within that. Francis Ford Coppola directs the film and, and one of the scenes that's so powerful about uh, it's, 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 it's surrounding the context is the Vietnam War. One of the scenes that's so powerful is this air cavalry. These helicopters are going to fly in. They're going to storm and take a beach and one of the things that the, the, the helicopters have done, the soldiers have done is they've attached speakers on the wings of the helicopters and as they're flying in they begin playing uh, the Flight of the Valkyries. You know that song. It's a classic song. Da, 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 da. And they're flying in and you see the waves and explosions begin happening on the beach and in the, the trees behind the beach. And the music is just so compelling and you're swept up in the attack. And eventually you see yourself as on one of those helicopters swooping in. And then the captain of the air cab, who is probably a little crazy in, in the show, brilliant acting, says this one line. He says, someday this war is going to end. Now, most of us, when we would say that line, we would say, someday this war is going to end. It's a hopeful statement of, of, of peace that might come. But the way that actor delivers the line, it's full of regret and mourning. Someday this war is going to end. 
And we realize the whole time from the beginning of the scene up until that point that Coppola has just snatched us and carried us along in this moment with the music and the explosions and the, the timing of the shots. He's, he's put us in this narrative that we do not belong. And all of a sudden he says that line and you realize how dangerous that situation really is. There's another brilliant parable in Apocalypse Now. There's a, there's a soldier on the boat, and they're, they're on a boat. They're on a mission to go up the river. And originally, he, he began in the army as a cook. And before the army, he was a saucier in a French restaurant, and he knew something about cooking. But when he joined the army, one of the things that the military does especially well is train people because they need to know people how to do their jobs very well. And so training is very important. And so he is being trained to be a, a U.S. Army cook, even though he already is a chef. And they bring in this beautiful ribeye beef. Gorgeous steak, as he tells the story. Well marbled, delicious. And this saucier thinks to himself, I know how to cook this ribeye. I know how to make this a beautiful steak. But the army wants to teach him how to do it the army way. And they bring out these giant cauldrons. Fill it with water. Take that beautiful steak and throw it in and boil it until it's gray tasteless meat. He's telling a parable, right? Because it's not just about beef that is ruined. It's about an entire generation of young Americans who have had their lives and their talent and their possibility and their uniqueness taken away in a war. So what do we do with parables? If we're not careful about the way we read them and study them, we might do what Beaconer calls boil the coffee out of the cup and just preach the stain at the bottom. And this turns a beautiful parable either into a, a guilt or anxiety-driven question. I mean, after all, the odds are one in four. Am I the good soil? And I, I'm here, so that must mean something. So how did I get to be the good soil? Is it because I am so good? Because God chose me? And there's that part about the weeds. Does this mean that a bad environment can affect how a person chooses God? Can bad parents or a bad neighborhood choke somebody's faith? And, and how is that fair? Parables exist as a genre of literature. And so when we, approach, when we approach this in Scripture, not only in the Gospels, but in the rest of the Bible, we need to know how to listen to what the author is trying to say. For instance, if I began a story by saying, once upon a time, you know that it's a fairy tale. And because I began with once upon a time, if, if a, a dragon should appear in the story, you know that's not real. You know that there's not real dragons, but I'm trying to do something else with the story I'm trying to tell. And you know that if a story begins once upon a time, how it's supposed to end, they live happily ever after. Or if I were to begin by saying, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. You know what's supposed to happen next. Schmolzy love stories. Big promises, and anybody that's been married knows exactly how difficult those are to keep. But something else happens in that moment, too. Something mystical and powerful. 
as two lives become one. And so when we approach a parable, we need to understand what Jesus is trying to do. I think the best example of this is a a clip we're going to play in just a moment. It's from uh, a movie called The Dead Poet Society. And if you're too young and you miss this movie, this is one you really uh, need to see. And basically the setup to this clip is it's set in a, uh, a preparatory academy, the, one of the best preparatory academies uh, in the nation. But all of these boys are not prepared for the English teacher, Mr. Keaton, who's going to change their world. Here it goes. Gentlemen, open your text, page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Perry, will you read the opening paragraph of the preface entitled Understanding Poetry? Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech, then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph and its importance is plotted on the vertical, then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area, thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will, so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Pritchard. We're not laying pipe. We're talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to it. Now, I want you to rip out that page. I love how Robin Williams always chose to play characters that didn't play by the rules. He was an English teacher that wouldn't play by the rules. He was a doctor that wouldn't play by the rules. He was so effective in this movie, I think there's an entire generation of English teachers that won't play by the rules, thereby creating the revival that must play by the rules, but whatever. Um, Parables are a tool that Jesus uses to bypass the mind to teach you something. And in this, in this section of Mark, he's going to describe what the kingdom is like. It's like a mystery of growing plants or a wedding that nobody wanted to come to, like buried treasure or like Pokemon Go. Now, if you've never experienced Pokemon Go, you can download it on your phone this afternoon. I strongly encourage you to check this out. This is a modern living parable that exists right in our midst. You see, Nintendo was the first to create kind of those, those video game home entertainment systems. Now, I know some of you nerds are going to say, well, actually, Atari came out first. Those were just two jokers in a garage in Sunnyvale. They don't count. All right? Um, 
Nintendo comes out with the first video game system. And I was about in the kindergarten, first grade when it came out. I was second grade by the time I had my own. The only thing I asked for for Christmas or my birthday until I was about 16 years old was a video game. And the first thing that I did when I woke up on a Saturday morning, I was cured of Saturday morning cartoons at that point because all I did was wanted to play video games. The first thing that I did when I got home is I would grab a snack and then race my brother so that I could be the first one to play video games. Nintendo did something crazy to the American childhood experience. They locked children inside of their rooms voluntarily. And I think that they tried to solve it. I think they felt bad about that situation. Because many years later, they came out with a system called the Wii. And it had these little hand controllers that like made you had to physically move. Like you could box. You could run. Like they made you stand up. And I went to my friend Joe's house and we were boxing and I was going at it. But he learned how to game the system. All he had to do was this. And as he hacked it, I'm sure Nintendo found out about this hack. So they make another game. They're going to force you to go outside. Pokemon Go is this, is this great game. And it's basically the, the, the explanation is you're capturing these monsters with these little balls. And then you develop those monsters by making them eat one another. That's basically how the game works. But I downloaded it for the first time. I was in San Jose. And the first thing that appears is not this virtual game world, but a map of my neighborhood. And I see like, oh, about a block and a half away, there's a monster. And so Nintendo forced me to walk outside and go a block and a half, and I caught the monster. In fact, there was this little video screen that you could use with your phone. You could point it where the monster was, and it would show up on your screen. It was augmented reality. It was this really cool thing. And by the end of that first day, I had walked like a mile and a half chasing these monsters. Now, the brilliant thing they did was the only way you could grow those monsters is if you kept walking outside. And so if you saw about five years ago, people trolling around in your neighborhood, driving like five miles an hour... It was because they were trying to hack Pokemon Go. And so every time I went for a run, I would not turn on my run keeper. I'd turn on Pokemon Go just so I could get the points to grow these monsters up. It was brilliant. But the parable is this. I walked around my neighborhood for years, never knowing about that reality that just existed right above my own. A reality of... Pokemon. In fact, I would cross certain intersections or go past certain businesses, and there were always people out front. I thought they were just waiting for the bus. But once I got my game, I realized the truth. They were having Pokemon battles, and they were fighting bosses. And this entire relationship, this community existed right in the middle of my uh, experience the whole time, and I had no idea. And that's kind of like the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want to take a step backwards from what we just saw in the poet's society, but I want to explain there's kind of two ways, or probably two primary ways for us to understanding parables. The first is they're kind of comparative. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like something you understand so that you get the bigger thing that you can understand. Or they're jolting. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, everyone in the first century would know that story. First comes the religious leader from Jerusalem. Nobody likes him. Of course he doesn't help. 
There comes another priestly leader that comes down the road. Nobody likes him. Of course he doesn't help. We all know who the third person that is going to come. It's going to be that hometown hero. It's going to be the good one in our midst. We all know who that's going to be. It's going to be the Pharisee. And sure enough, we look with Jesus to see who's coming around the bend, and it's a Samaritan? What? The story of the prodigal son, the father, everyone knows what that's supposed to happen when that son comes home. He is supposed to be shamed. He is supposed to live as a servant and a slave. He is supposed to be grateful that that's all he gets. But that father runs. So sometimes parables help us understand the world around us. Other times they jolt us. So which is this one? I mean, what kind of farmer is this exactly? I don't know if you have any experience with gardening. Mine began uh, about the sixth grade. Uh, I was in 4-H. And I took gardening as one of the projects. And, uh, and so they, they taught us how to do gardening well. And it begins by taking a pH sample of your soil and then adjusting it. Our soil was too acidic growing up in Denver. So we added some things to get the pH balance right. And then I added some sand because I was trying to grow carrots. And, and carrots need sandy soil. And then I, I buried each of those seeds exactly a half inch in the ground. Padded gently on top to make sure they were a deal. Gave it enough water, the right amount of water every week. Made sure it was getting enough sunlight. I did it all right. And when it was time to harvest those carrots, they looked a lot more like green beans and they tasted terrible. (laughs) I threw them all away. What kind of farmer is this? Everyone knows that seeds on the path don't grow. What is this crazy farmer doing anyway? This story isn't about the soils. This story is about God. This is an exuberant God tossing his truths like tiny seeds everywhere. The entire cosmos is full of the points of light that point to him. It's if the sower doesn't even care where his seeds go. Fast forward a few years, I'm gardening in San Jose and my wife and I kind of developed this gently friendly competitive gardening experience and I know exactly what I'm doing and I test the pH soil in San Jose. If you don't know, San Jose is in Santa Clara Valley, which is the best soil in America. It had the best harvest from um, fruit trees in the world and then they bulldozed it all over to build buildings and parking lots. It's a crazy tragedy, but your backyard is incredible for soil. pH balance is perfect. Soil's ready to go. I'm not even going to waste time with seeds anymore. I'm going to go buy those pre-made plants that you can get at Lowe's or somewhere. Snap those in there. Good to go. I'm growing watermelon. This is going to be amazing. I water it all the time, appropriately, and the biggest watermelon I get is like the size of my thumb. Meanwhile, Natalie gets like four tomato plants, doesn't even know where she gets them, doesn't even care, just puts them in the ground, waters them once, (laughs) maybe twice. And those aren't tomato plants. Those become like tomato jungles. We get so many tomatoes that our neighbors won't take them anymore. (laughs) You know, God doesn't garden 
the way that I try to. This isn't how God plants seeds. He doesn't judge if this is good soil or the best planting technique. He just throws seed out because his bag never runs out of seed. And he does it because you can't tell. That perfectly balanced pH soil, that sandy soil that should have produced the perfect carrots gave us nothing. But that haphazard, careless planting of tomatoes yields more than we could possibly eat. You don't know. You don't know if the former addict will become a powerful witness changing lives everywhere they go. Or if the good church kid who grew up knowing all the answers and attending church camp every summer just walks away. You can't judge what the soil is going to be. And the beautiful thing about this story is that God doesn't care. God doesn't care about your potential. He doesn't care about the likelihood that you are going to be productive. He just throws his seed into the world. He wants the world to know it is loved. He wants the world to know it is wonderful. He wants the world to know it is beautiful. So much so that God sent his son to show us how to live and how to die and how to be reborn. There is a kingdom that is coming all around us. It is breaking in every which way, in every possible place, if you only have the eyes to see what's happening. But if you don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, you're going to miss it. And I wonder what would happen if we could wind the clock backwards about 95, 100 years. And this soil that we're on right now, it was probably just a bunch of mesquite trees and maybe a cow pasture. But somebody came along and said, you know what? Maybe God wants to plant a church here. Maybe they caught the vision of the kingdom of what it could be and what it might look like if there were people who were just faithful to him. Maybe they didn't understand the future and what it would hold and, and what this place would look like a hundred years later. They were just going to be faithful with the thing that God was calling them to do at that moment. And because they were faithful, because God is throwing his seed across the cosmos, we are here. And look at this harvest. Look at all the people that are going to be fed this winter because of what God has done in our midst. Look at this harvest. Look at all of the people who have been blessed by Christ's love because we're willing to show up. And look at the harvest. Look at all of the people in the world for the past hundred years who have heard the message of Jesus' love because somebody here was willing to say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to follow God's word. Let's try to plant a church. This is not the story of soil. This is about the exuberant farmer when God's good word meets good soil and the kingdom explodes. Do we have the eyes to see? Do we have the ears to hear? If you have your bulletin, we've been going through uh, some disciplines together, and I want you to encourage you to, to fill this out, uh, check boxes of the ones you're ready and committed to do. I'm going to, there's two there, I'm going to point out the last one. I'm going to just kind of notice the title, I Repent. If you forgot to bring food this Sunday, that's okay. 
you can repent. Uh, just check that box and we'll follow up with you this week about ways that you can give, uh, whether that's online, through text, you can uh, bring a check or you can bring food into the office. We'll, we'll give you options about how to make that work. It's okay if you forgot, no big deal. God will notice. I'm just kidding. But I really want to encourage you to do that, cho- that top box to pray. Uh, if you missed class today, Dr. David Knight did an amazing job of leading us through strategies of how to read God's word. I want to encourage you to come back for the next two weeks as other presenters continue to teach us as we begin to discern uh, these questions together. It's very important for you to be engaged in this, but it's more important for you to be praying about this for our church. So I want to encourage you to check that prayer box and be in prayer this week about this process. Will you please stand for our benediction? We serve a God who is this crazy farmer who just throws his word and his truth to anyone that will listen, anyone that will hear. And so this week, may you have ears to hear the voice of God as it speaks to you. May it draw you closely to his name. And this week, may you have the courage to be good soil. Let those ideas take root in your heart and let it change your life. And may we all be part of the kingdom that is unfolding all around us. Go with God as you go in peace.